back once again to food toxicology and I'm Greg Muller I'm on the instructor for this course today's lecture what we're going to do is talk about the next step the next step in the uh, discussion of food toxicology sources pathways receptors and controls and we're going to deal with some of the pathways we followed last time uh, what happens in terms of crossing that that incredible uh, barrier system in absorption from the chemical side to the biological side to the essentially physical to the organismal side in terms of toxicology well what's next is the question that we are going to try to address in today's lecture in terms of the distribution and storage uh, for example uh, we've all had an insect bite a fairly localized uh, impact in terms of a skin irritation Many of us uh, have not, on the other hand, had a snake bite uh, where there's an injection of a toxin or a venom that actually has not only localized impact but systemic impact throughout the body and sometimes within rapid uh, period of time and with fairly dramatic consequences. So we're going to talk about the distribution and storage of toxicants and this as a predisposition of the types of toxicosis, the types of disease that we may get with a sufficient level of dose. Our learning objectives here today, we're going to try to identify some of the ways that toxicants are distributed in the body. What gives us the ability to have uh, an ingestion and absorption through the skin yet have consequences in organs, organelles, at distant sites in the organism. We're going to try as well to recognize the relationship between the route of absorption and the pathway for distribution. Obviously, as we have said, um, in respiration we breathe and in fact the gas exchange across that very large membrane known as our lungs actually allows for very rapid assimilation of potential toxicants into the pulmonary system and therefore rapid assimilation throughout the organism. We're going to try to describe some of the factors affecting distribution. We'll define what is the volume of distribution. How big are we? What do we contain? How do we dilute these toxins that perhaps are very, very violent at very low concentrations and we dilute them? Uh, if you recall back to our discussion about dose and response, uh, and therapeutic indices and margins of safety, remember that there are therapeutic concentrations, and we'll talk about some of those. We'll list some of the storage sites. We'll discuss how storage influences toxicant half-life. If we are, in fact, metabolizing the subject for the next lecture in this series, uh, what can we learn from toxicant uh, half-life and how storage might have an impact? And we'll try and do some case studies to kind of illustrate those particular points. We'll try as well to review these case studies and models of storage and distribution and give you a sense of how to use the information in uh, actual real-life clinical cases. Well, in terms of absorption, it is the primary uh, process of, of crossing these compartmental barriers. Uh, uh, the barriers in terms of the human organism, these are epithelial cell barriers typically uh, that line our lungs, our gastric uh, uh, systems, uh, our skin, for example. The absorption through skin, lung, or intestinal tissue is followed by passage into the interstitial fluid and a distribution then into the other fluids in the cell, outside of the cell, throughout the body. You'll see various representations in human anatomy and physiology textbooks on the volumes of all of these different types of fluids, and this difference has to do with the size of the model. For example, an adult male is going to be significantly different in terms of the volume of distribution than uh, a female child. Okay? Well, this toxin is absorbed and then it enters the lymph of the blood um, system and uh, then it is mobilized to other parts of the body because the blood flow is very rapid, lymph flow significantly slower, but still a mobilization vehicle. It then, because it has been dist distributed, can enter uh, local tissue cells. That will have a lot to do about the physical chemical characteristics of the toxicant itself, as well as the types of receptors and tissue types uh, that it passes. You know, for example, we've said many times, like, likes, like, uh, lipophilic substances will tend to associate and concentrate in lipophilic tissues or fat tissues. In terms of distribution, we have the lymphatic system. It in, in, is encompassed by the lymph capillaries, lymph nodes, tonsils, spleen, thymus, and the lymphocytes. And so we actually can drain fluid. It's a slow drainage fluid. 
people that uh, have swelling injuries, quite often it's because of a backup of lymph or a rushing of lymph to an injury site. Um, it is a slow circulation as opposed to the cardiovascular system where we have very, very rapid flow. We have uh, nominally in adult uh, five liters or uh, plus or minus uh, of uh, body fluids. These are pumped extremely rapidly. Um, the heart, arterial and venous vessels, the capillaries, uh, and the various uh, uh, blood circulatory uh, parts of organs. Um, it's a very, very fast circulation, so the ability of something to get from one part of the body to the other parts of the body is very, very rapid. And this has a lot to do uh, with the, uh, the blood flow associated with particular organs. Uh, for example, uh, in exercise, uh, our muscles can actually get about 60% of the blood flow. As opposed to in rest, uh, our liver gets about 27% of the blood flow okay, in a first pass from the intestines. And we'll talk about that in terms of distribution and absorption. Um, we have a major distribution vessel in terms of toxicants by the blood. Uh, so the, although the lymphatic system uh, is possible um, in terms of uh, drainage uh, and movement, uh, the major distribution factor is in fact blood. In the blood system, um, we have it's made up of uh, fluids and cells within that fluid. Uh, it's a major toxicant transport system. In terms of some of the cells, we have the erythrocytes, the red blood cells containing hemoglobin, primarily for gas transport, oxygen in one direction, carbon dioxide in the other. We have the leukocytes, or the white blood cells, and there's many different types of leukocytes, uh, uh, the uh, various elements of the immune that make up the immune system. Uh, we have uh, platelets. Platelets, or thrombocytes, are important in terms of clotting mechanisms. Uh, platelets actually are, are slow in terms of regeneration. Uh, their lifespan is on the order of 10 days, whereas erythrocytes, uh, you might have a, a lifespan uh, in, the, in the organism of about uh, two or three months. Um, plasma is the whatever is left, non-cellular fluid. This particularly is made up of inorganic ions, proteins, uh, uh, cell waste uh, material, uh, all of the other stuff that's not on a cellular basis. Quite often, it's plasma that we deal with when we talk about volume of distribution or we talk about therapeutic monitoring of drugs. We want to see the concentration in plasma. And so it's a good idea to know in terms of that volume of distribution what exactly we're dealing with and how plasma is actually a relatively small amount of the, all of the, the water or the fluids that uh, exist in the human organism. In terms of entering the bloodstream, where it enters uh, can affect the toxicity. Uh, in terms of the digestive system, we have uh, sometimes uh, fast, sometimes slow uh, uh, absorption of toxicants depending upon the physical and chemical state of the toxicant. Um, the portal vein, uh, which is the main uh, blood flow uh, pathway uh, from the intestinal system, uh, carries toxicants and as well as nutrients directly to the liver for biosynthesis or biotransformation. Uh, it's a major site, the liver is, for detoxification. We get what is called a first-pass effect. And this first-pass effect has a lot to do with the survival of the organism. Uh, what I mean by that is when you eat, you have the nutrients and the molecules of life, your energy substrates. Uh, the idea uh, in terms of how we have evolved this way is to allow for a tremendous amount of blood flow to come from the gastrointestinal tract and into the liver for all of the, the uh, metabolic syntheses that need to happen, the proteins, the enzymes, uh, the uh, glycogen synthesis that needs to happen in the liver. With that process, we also get toxicants carried to the liver, and there is a tremendous capability of the liver, the so-called uh, uh, waste treatment uh, organ of the body, to actually uh, detoxify those chemicals. And we have talked in many cases about the detoxification or biotransformation of toxicants as the conversion of grease to salt, and we'll see that actually in the next lecture. In the respiratory system, it's a very rapid exchange. It goes directly into the pulmonary uh, circulation system, and so there is the potential for rapid entry and rapid intoxication. Uh, airborne uh, contaminants uh, can take down an individual very rapidly. Um, particulants, uh, whether it be uh, physical irritation such as asbestos 
or uh, dust particles from silicosis actually uh, can slowly migrate uh, through the lymph system. And typically what happens, it's a, it's a function of size. Uh, respired particles uh, greater than about 10 microns can actually be expelled via the mucociliary escalator. Uh, particles that are less than 10 microns but perhaps greater than about 0.2 microns are actually can uh, lodge in the alveoli and actually migrate through cell walls, through the interstitial spaces between cell walls and uh, in fact uh, be deposited and transported uh, by the lymph system. Uh, particles less than about 0.2 micron um, actually can be exhaled, that can go into your lungs and be exhaled. Uh, it has a lot to do with Brownian motion and just buoyancy, air buoyancy of particles at those very, very small sizes. In terms of the uh, absorption percutaneous or dermal absorption, um, it enters through the peripheral broad blood supply and it can, uh, in fact, uh, impact organs and tissues and organelles uh, very far away in terms of a systemic impact. Now, some of the factors affecting distribution, as you can well imagine, the physical or chemical properties of the toxicant. Uh, is this uh, uh, a solid or is it uh, uh, something that is rapidly impacted? If it's immune mediated, there might be an immune uh, reaction. That immune reaction might, for instance, uh, have an effect in terms of uh, a dermal absorption, for instance, uh, uh, of poison ivy poison. Um, has a lot to do with the concentration gradient, the volume of distribution, where we have a uh, dose uh, uh, distributed over a certain volume of plasma, giving us a particular uh, concentration. Um, that actually can help us uh, in terms of pharmaceuticals because we'll be able to identify a clinical or a therapeutic concentration. Uh, that uh, allows us to maintain that across different body weights of individuals. So we change the dose for children, uh, for perhaps uh, you know, as opposed to a 200-pound uh, adult, um, to allow for a uh, therapeutic concentration that will do what the particular medicine is supposed to do. Um, the cardiac output to specific tissues is an important factor affecting distribution. Uh, our various organs uh, have differences in terms of cardiac output. Uh, again, I said the liver at rest gets about 27% of the blood flow. The kidneys get a substantial amount of blood flow, as does the brain. But that changes, for instance, during exercise. There are well, as well as detoxification reactions. Uh, these can be specific uh, uh, biotransformations or, for example, protein binding. Uh, albumin is one uh, protein, serum albumin, that uh, will bind and uh, assist in not only the transport of toxicants, but the detoxification and the fact that it is perhaps had its active groups. The toxicants' active groups are actually no more uh, reactive and therefore can be eliminated. Uh, there will also be uh, a factor of the tissue sensitivity to the toxicant. Uh, again, we've talked about that adipose tissue will be more sensitive to lipophilic uh, chemical compounds. Uh, particular organs, organelles, will have receptors for different chemicals. Uh, sometimes those receptors uh, will be uh, cross-sensitive to uh, naturally occurring um, uh, proteins or uh, chemicals such as hormones. And then we also have, in terms of a factor affecting distribution, we have certain barriers that we have talked about. We talked about it in our absorption lectures, the blood-brain barrier, the placental barrier, and these will uh, inhibit migration from one part of the body, perhaps, to another. Now, some toxicants can bind to plasma proteins, such as albumin, and this can affect distribution and it can affect the half-life of a uh, particular compound. If you can imagine that there is some physical distribution dominated by thermodynamics in terms of concentration gradient, where you'll have a free toxicant, uh, and that will be in equilibrium with the bound toxicant uh, on the protein, and uh, it might be available for distribution in some sort of endpoint effect. And so um, at small or low-dose concentrations, you might find that uh, your serum albumin um, or pr plasma protein uh, binding will actually uh, detoxify in and of itself and there will only be a minimal toxic endpoint as opposed to higher doses where you overwhelm that particular system.
Plasma concentration is a good indicator of uh, toxicant at the site of action. So when we do a toxicosis analysis, when we are looking for a poison, if you will, uh, in an impacted individual, we'll take a blood sample, we'll spin that down so that we have a plasma sample, and the concentration in that plasma sample will be diagnostic of potential poisoning or intoxication. Um, the apparent volume of distribution, V sub D in liters, is a good way to look at the total volume of body fluids uh, when a toxicant is distrib distributed. Uh, because we can back calculate from V sub D, we can actually back calculate and look at uh, dose and dosage in terms of an individual because for many toxicants we know uh, relative half-lives and so we can go do some dose reconstruction experiments. These numbers and these uh, uh, approaches in terms of the uh, volumetric and the physical concentration analysis of toxicants help us a lot in terms of uh, therapeutic monitoring and disease diagnosis. One of the ways that we can take a look at the, um, the whole distribution of, of toxicants uh, in the human body is to examine the distribution and composition of body fluids. And this graphic uh, from a textbook on medical physiology helps us identify the different breakdowns in terms of where our body fluids are in terms of cell water, interstitial fluid components, uh, extracellular fluids, uh, and plasma, and the amount in terms of how much would appear in an adult male. Recognize that uh, adult males and adult females are going to have different uh, amounts of relative body fluids, and it has a lot to do with the body flat body fat compositions be differences uh, between males and females. Now it's important in terms of the distribution and storage uh, that we identify major organs that are involved in processing of those toxicants. Uh, primary among these organs is uh, distribution to and from the liver. Again, the portal vein allows us, uh, if you remember your anatomy, um, we uh, actually uh, drain the uh, liver, uh, uh, we drain the gastrointestinal tract uh, straight to the liver. Uh, in terms of blood flow, the liver gets uh, about 80% of its uh, blood volume as venous blood coming from the gastrointestinal tract. About 20% is arterial blood. And uh, what this does is it allows the absorbed nutrients uh, from the gastrointestinal tract to be uh, passed to the liver very, very rapidly. Um, and again, a lot of these are uh, associated with energy stores and the uh, components uh, required for biosynthesis of many of the molecules of life. It ensures that the uh, toxicant uh, uh, has a, a major potential for toxicant interaction at the liver. And we'll talk about hepatotoxicity or target organ toxicity associated with the liver uh, in one of our further lectures. Uh, there is a challenge in terms of uh, the liver. Uh, the liver was set up for maximum absorption, maximum bioprocessing to use the nutrients uh, and in some cases reuse nutrients uh, very, very uh, uh, efficiently. Uh, there is a system referred to as enterohepatic recirculation. Uh, on the website, uh, on your course modules, I have a, uh, an animation, a cartoon, if you will, of enterohepatic recirculation, the link here on this particular slide for you. But this circulation uh, does, in the case of toxicants, allow for the potential of recycled exposure. What happens is that a toxicant that's in the blood passes to the liver. It gets discharged, sometimes it's a bioprocessed conjugate, and we'll talk about conjugation next time. Uh, will get discharged through the bile ducts back into the intestine as a component of the bile. But remember that the gastrointestinal tract is uh, highly vascularized uh, that, uh, uh, and, and set up for absorption. Those bioprocessed toxicants uh, as parent compounds, as metabolites, can get reabsorbed and redistributed back into the liver uh, via the portal vein and then repeated through a cycle. Uh, the portal vein uh, and its connections being downstream of the upstream uh, bile acid discharge, okay? So that enterohepatic recirculation allows for this recycled exposure. Uh, the recycled exposure can increase the uh, half-life of toxicants, and this has a lot, again, to do with 
the reason that the liver is trying to maximize absorption. Uh, if we eat something that's energy food, uh, we want to make sure uh, that we maximize our absorption and our utilization of those components. Unfortunately, some of those components uh, uh, that are in our diet uh, actually can be uh, toxins and they go through this same sort of high efficiency absorption process. This uh, is a bovine uh, liver and gallbladder um, from a dissection. Uh, I just wanted to give you an idea of the, the size and uh, complexity. Uh, uh, human anatomy is a little bit different, but the functionality uh, is the same. You see the, um, the gallbladder down here uh, allows for storage in between uh, high concentration or high fat diets. Uh, in the human, there's a, a significant storage capability. Uh, people that have their gallbladders removed have less capability to deal with high-fat diets. Uh, there's a little bit of gastrointestinal upset. In terms of the fine structure, this is about a, a 5 or 10x micrograph uh, of just a transect across liver uh, tissue. This is not really microscopic. You can make out in here, number one, the, the uh, large numbers of vascular pathways, uh, things like bile ducts that go in and out. Um, but you'll see a distribution of uh, fine structure here, these liver lobules, as they're called. Each one are uh, essentially independently units, uh, operating units, uh, each with its own vascularization system. Uh, it's a collection of hepatocytes or liver cells that are actually doing the bioprocessing. Quite often in toxicology, uh, rather than do a study uh, in an animal, uh, an in vitro, uh, study is done instead. Uh, animal studies are in vivo in terms of, for instance, looking at the uh, metabolism of a particular toxicant or a pharmaceutical, a food additive perhaps. Uh, quite often, instead of going into animal studies, people will use isolated uh, rat hepatocytes, uh, the actual uh, cells that bioprocess uh, these chemical compounds. And in cell culture, uh, dose uh, these uh, cells with a chemical and look for the particular metabolites coming out of this uh, cell culture. And that's a very strong tool in terms of understanding metabolism uh, from an in vitro experimental protocol. Now this is a complex uh, formula, if you will, of a distribution endpoint model. Uh, what we've tried to do here in the slide is break down uh, distribution all the possible pathways in almost an engineering diagram. And so if I have uh, a, a toxicant that does get absorbed uh, into the organism, it goes through this pathway and at several points can, can, can go in different directions, but as is more typical, it goes simultaneously in multiple directions. In other words, some may be stored, some may be biotransformed, some may be uh, uh, eliminated uh, directly as parent compound. So if we have a toxicant and we go into the storage biotransform uh, formation uh, uh, loop, obviously chemicals that are highly lipophilic will start going uh, into storage in the fat. Uh, some uh, inorganic materials such as lead will start being stored uh, in terms of calcium exchange processes in the bone. In terms of biotransformation, this is where we actually perform chemical reactions uh, via enzymes, uh, via co cofactors in our body. Again, we will discuss this uh, in great detail in our next lecture. But we biotransform them. We make those very greasy molecules more polar and therefore more water-soluble. These metabolites are then set up uh, for excretion. Uh, now, the toxin itself, as parent compound, can go directly to excretion. Um, and, or perhaps uh, interaction with cells uh, or uh, organelles. And so this gives you an idea of all the different uh, places uh, that a toxicant can, can go to in terms of processing uh, in vivo in the, in the human body. As it turns out, typically there are multiple pathways available, and it is uh, probably more likely in terms of a toxicant uh, to have multiple metabolites. For example, in terms of urinary excretion, you may find the parent compound in some percent and one major metabolite, two major metabolites, or maybe uh, five or six different metabolites in terms of the total toxic residue uh, in terms of its excretion. And so these total body burden, these elimination uh, distribution uh, models 
are very, very helpful in understanding a particular compound, how it's being metabolized, what's the relative uh, toxicity of the metabolites. Are the metabolites detoxified or are they toxified, as in some cases where the metabolism process increases the potency uh, via uh, chemical reaction, sometimes, for example, in the liver. Now let's move on to storage, and storage is uh, the accumulation of toxicants in specific tissues, and there's a couple that are kind of the major areas of storage in terms of the, bon the body. We'll bind to plasma proteins. This is uh, uh, typically a shorter term storage uh, uh, because of the turno turnover of blood uh, components. Uh, albumin, serum albumin is the most abundant and common uh, binder in terms of it. Serum albumin is, is uh, important in terms of transport of nutrients. It's what it's there for. Uh, it's about uh, uh, a third to a half of the protein level uh, in your blood. Uh, it's used for osmotic pressure regulation. We can also uh, have storage uh, of uh, certain types of chemicals in the bones. These are typically inorganics, uh, such as heavy metals. Uh, lead is a classic uh, bone storage uh, toxicant. On the other side, in terms of that's a cation, on the anionic side, remember that bone is made up of calcium phosphate, uh, phosphate or oxyanion analogs uh, such as uh, uh, vanadates uh, will uh, sometimes uh, store in bones. We have storage potential in the liver, um, not only in the fatty tissue of the liver, just in terms of ability of certain chemicals to bind on the tissues of the liver. Uh, the liver, remember, is uh, important in terms of blood flow and biotransformation. Um, it is a highly regenerable organ. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit in our discussions of hepatotoxicity, um, but it is one of a, only a couple places in the body where we have a tremendous amount of potential for regeneration of the original organ. So this organ uh, has the potential to sustain a tremendous amount of damage and the survivability organism is probably in large part due to the ability of this organ to survive that damage. We have some potential for storage in the kidneys, uh, accumulation of material binding, for instance, of heavy metal uh, moieties on various uh, uh, components of the kidneys, uh, sometimes leading to nephrotoxicity. Again, something we'll deal with in our target organ toxicity uh, discussions. We also have the potential to uh, observe storage in fat. Uh, to chronically or morbidly obese uh, individuals uh, have a tremendous amount of potential to store uh, a tremendous uh, load or body burden of toxicants in their fat. When we do uh, lipid biopsies or fat biopsies, uh, we find uh, concentrations of lipophilic chemicals like PCBs. Uh, some uh, flame retardants, uh, lipophilic uh, or chlorinated hydrocarbon pesticides, insecticides such as DDT that uh, build up and bioaccumulate uh, throughout the, the uh, natural world in, in what uh, some ecologists refer to as the liposphere. Uh, again, going out into nature and looking for all the fat residues uh, in plants and animal tissues if we have a food chain, there is a potential for accumulation, and in some cases, concentration up the food chain of lipophilic chemical compounds. This is the first of a couple case studies uh, we'll do in this lecture. Uh, this was a case study I happen to be involved in in, in uh, Petaluma, California. Uh, this has to do with bone storage in chicken. In this particular case, this is a veterinary diagnostic toxicology case. Uh, there were laying hens uh, that were in late molt. For those of you that have ever been involved in egg production, egg is a part of the reproductive cycle of the chicken, and uh, in commercial production, controlling that reproductive cycle is important in terms of productivity in, in most uh, egg-laying operations. Uh, to do that, uh, producers will uh, do several things. Number one, because these animals uh, are bred for their production, uh, their high level of egg production, they have to be on very, very high calcium diets. These calcium diets typically uh, are via calcium phosphate or rock phosphate uh, that is mined, or sometimes uh, supplements like oyster shell. 
if you keep your own chickens, you know that uh, if you're going to have egg layers, you're going to have to have uh, not only the uh, chicken feed, but you'll need uh, some uh, oyster shell or some other uh, calcium supplement uh, that these animals uh, will crave because of their high metabolism in terms of egg production. Now, what happens in terms of their reproductive cycle to keep a flock of chickens uh, on call, so to speak, in terms of egg production, producers will force a molt. Uh, molt is a part of a bird's uh, reproductive cycle modification. Uh, molts can happen uh, in response to changes in diet, uh, changes in temperature, changes in light, um, essentially seasonal variations. And to bring, in, in some cases when there's a commercial production of several thousand birds, uh, bring them simultaneously into molt, for instance, uh, they'll shutter uh, the facility, make it all dark, they'll take them off a of feed for a few days, they'll somehow interrupt their physiological cycle, bring them all into molt together, uh, and then they come out of molt ready to get into high production. Now, in terms of commercial egg laying, uh, because these uh, animals are uh, 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 laying many, many eggs, uh, they have a tremendous calcium turnover potential. Uh, the uh, major breastbone in the chicken is actually a calcium reserve uh, uh, for egg laying. The amount of calcium turnover is very, very high. Um, and chickens can cycle about 50% of their egg mass in egg production. And again, so this is a, a requirement uh, of commercial egg laying. In this particular case, uh, the animals uh, actually uh, had a very, very bad molt. Um, they did not come out of molt very easy. Um, there was a, a bone storage uh, upset in terms of calcium. Uh, there was about a 20% death rate. Uh, I think it was several thousand uh, chickens total in this particular um, uh, facility. Uh, these animals, uh, because they did not enter their molt uh, the way they should have, uh, actually um, metabolized, kept metabolizing uh, their, their body burden of calcium at a very, very high rate uh, without uh, access to their calcium supplement because this was a forced molt. Um, these animals uh, started losing tremendous amounts of their bone mass. Uh, their, uh, bones in their legs were uh, brittle as uh, pencils, easily to be broken. And uh, in terms of follow-up toxicological analysis, uh, the uh, uh, materials, the toxicants such as lead and vanadium that were in their bones were, was actually being released into their blood system. There was high blood lead, high blood vanadium uh, in these particular animals. So again, metabolism of the bone structure in terms of returning some of those inorganic elements in to the primary blood flow, thus allowing some potential for intoxication. This case study is a, another one. This is in a, a human uh, situation, similar sorts of sort of lead mobilization. <clears throat> in this particular case, this was uh, mobilization of bone stores uh, dealing uh, during a uh, thyroid uh, toxicosis. Uh, and in this particular case, a 37-year-old female smoker and this individual had a history of uh, childhood lead exposure, uh, pica or dirt eating, uh, paint chip eating uh, when uh, she was a uh, youth. Um, there was uh, about seven years earlier, this individual was involved in old house renovation for about six months, uh, exposed to a lot of lead dust during those renovation processes. Um, and uh, this individual presented with uh, fatigue, cramps, insomnia, weight loss, muscle, uh, uh, cramps and uh, tremor. Uh, her blood lead levels uh, uh, were extremely elevated, about 51 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, normal is typically below 5 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, her EP or erythrocyte protoporphyrin, which is an indicator of lead exposure, was elevated uh, and she had a enlarged uh, thyroid uh, on physical examination. Um, her bone lead levels by x-ray fluorescence were extremely high uh, in two of her different leg bones, 154 and 253 parts per million micrograms per gram were a normal as five to 10. And so her bone stores of lead were uh, very elevated. Uh, 
She did uh, also have uh, an indication of uh, hyperthyroidism. Uh, her hormones, her thyroid hormone levels in terms of blood analyses were very elevated. There was obviously uh, a disease manifestation. This particular uh, disease manifestation uh, was uh, associated with or consistent with Graves' disease. Uh, one of the uh, clinical components of Graves' disease is high turnover of bone calcium. Uh, people that suffer with this uh, disease uh, typically will have fragile bones. Um, in her particular case, the blood protein that's an in indicator of calcium turnover, um, and this is serum osteocalcin, uh, it was elevated and that gave an indication that the thyroid problem and the excess amount of uh, thyroid hormone imbalance was leading to a high amount of bone turnover that bone turnover was uh, releasing stored uh, lead uh, from her bone structures. Uh, the thyroidism was treated uh, with a, a technique called uh, thyroid ablation therapy, uh, where uh, radioactive iodine, iodine-131, is actually dosed to the patient. Uh, what it does, it typically kills off the uh, higher, um, uh, the overactive thyroid cells, uh, and essentially, uh, 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 diminishes the output of the thyroid. Uh, the dose response in terms of this therapy to uh, its indirect toxicosis and in terms of release of blood lead uh, was significant. 25 weeks, weeks later, uh, the blood lead levels were down to 19 micrograms per uh, deciliter. At 52 weeks a year later, it was down to 17. Um, and so. The idea of treating one particular uh, part of the patient uh, or one particular disease manifestation controlling uh, an in vivo toxicosis uh, is uh, quite interesting and this is one of the first cases where these relationships uh, were established in terms of the historical occupational or industrial medicine. What's important as well in distribution and storage of toxicants is the route of exposure. Remember that the GI tract sends the toxicant directly to liver via the portal system, and so we get this first pass detoxication um, associated with uh, the liver. Uh, the GI to lymph system, uh, because we do have some direct transport of uh, chemicals, uh, whether it be nutrients or um, uh, toxicants, to the lymph system uh, can happen, but it is slower. The respiratory or skin exposure can have greater systemic effects in terms of distribution uh, rapidly uh, around the body. And this rate of metabolism uh, can actually have impact uh, the systemic effects uh, around the organism. Slower metabolism will allow a wider distribution. So if you have a rapid binding, rapid detoxication, uh, a very, very short half-life uh, that will affect the ability of a toxicant to actually impact receptors uh, distant from the site of the injury. We have uh, at uh, our dispension, uh, disposition models that allow us to uh, do a quantitative analysis, kinetic analysis, uh, if you will, as uh, of toxic intoxication. One of the ways we do this is to simplify um, the organism, complex organism, in terms of various organs. Uh, uh, we simplify these as uh, looking at uh, compartmentalizing uh, the body. So if we take a look at the different tissues as compartments, for instance, blood and fat and bone, liver, kidneys, and brain, and we break it down in terms of the uh, compartmental boundaries between those two, and establish rates of transport across and then back across once again uh, those boundaries. One of the ways we can do that if we take uh, all sorts of assumptions is to simplify towards a one component uh, open model. Uh, we'll let it have first order kinetics and as you can see on this graph the log of the concentration of the toxicant decreases uh, rapidly uh, in a linear fashion in first order kinetics uh, over time. And that allows us to get an idea of predicting how uh, things will uh, occur in terms of intoxication for toxicants that follow uh, first order kinetics. Sometimes uh, we have to go a little bit more complex because we have uh, uh, toxicants that uh, can cross boundaries that impact multiple compartments uh, simultaneously. Uh, so we'll go to, for instance, a two compartment open model 
an example here, it enters the blood and then goes to another component in this particular example, the liver, before being excreted or returned. How to do this mathematically is typically more complex. You can see here in this graphic that we've got uh, the amount that's in the blood uh, is decaying over time, but the amount uh, simultaneously that occurs in the liver is increasing prior to some sort of biotransformation in, uh, in before uh, excretion elimination. This helps us, uh, again, to uh, get an idea of the impact of time uh, post-intoxication when these impacts uh, will lead to uh, final excretion. In terms of disposition, uh, this is another case study. This is a veterinary diagnostic toxicology case study. Uh, sheep are very uh, sensitive uh, to copper uh, as a species. These particular sheep uh, had uh, access to uh, a copper sulfate feed supplement uh, in a poisoning episode, non-intentional. Uh, copper, as you know, is a strong oxidizing agent. Uh, in sheep, it causes uh, something called an acute hemolytic crisis where the red blood cells are, are lysed open. Uh, icterus hemoglobinuria, where there's actually uh, hemoglobin in the urine. Hemoglobinemia, uh, in terms of uh, the uh, lysed red blood cells in the blood. And then finally, uh, because of the potential impact of copper uh, with some of the proteins in the liver, you get a tubular nephrosis or in uh, a dying off of the tissue in critical parts of the kidney that uh, allow for balance of uh, bodily fluids. In this particular case, in terms of disposition, um, you can see a, a abject uh, discoloration of the soft tissues uh, from the hemoglobinemia or the hemoglobin free hemoglobin in the blood. Uh, it uh, essentially is staining all of the tissues uh, in this right brown color. In terms of the uh, kidney and the impact of the copper and the hemoglobin, uh, free hemoglobin in the kidney, uh, you see a classic uh, uh, postmortem here of a gunmetal kidney uh, where what should be a pinkish red. Uh, maroon tissue is actually a gunmetal color because of the impacts of the metals from uh, the hemoglobin iron and the copper uh, on the specific tissues uh, of this, uh, this organ. We also, in terms of monitoring uh, distribution, uh, we have uh, structural barriers in the body and we've talked about some of these in our absorption uh, lecture. We remember that we have the blood-brain barrier. Uh, the brain has these specialized cells here shown in this image of astrocytes. Uh, astrocytes are actually uh, a uh, higher fat concentration cell. Uh, it limits uh, water-soluble mo molecules from the capillary endothelium and neurons of the brain. And so, uh, again, an evolutionary structure perhaps to make sure that uh, if we are exposed to something uh, that may impact uh, uh, us, that uh, the brain is perhaps the uh, last organ, uh, the one that's most important in terms of survivability, uh, it's the last organ to perhaps uh, be affected. Again, in terms of evolutionary uh, survival, the placental barrier consists of several cell layers, again, with alternating uh, uh, or enhanced uh, fat contents. Um, it's between the maternal and the fetal circulatory systems. These uh, structures help slow toxicant passage both chemically and structurally, okay? And so they're an important factor affecting distribution of toxicants. Uh, for example, knowing this, if you are a pharmaceutical uh, company uh, designer and you are dealing with something that needs to have a um, uh, good entry into the brain in terms of its therapeutic impact, you're going to have to design that molecule so it's got the size and the lipophilicity to be able to cross that barrier so it'll have uh, a therapeutic concentration at the organ of, of impact, which in that case might be the brain. This is another case study. Uh, again, this one was a, a study from uh, a uh, critical review in toxicology, a fairly substantial case uh, happened back in uh, 1973 in terms of contamination of the U.S. food supply. Uh, it's associated with a chemical compound uh, class called polybrominated biphenyls. You can see it on this structural 
here that we have the uh, biphenyl structure and then we have the potential to brominate on the periphery of here uh, numerous times. These particular chemical compounds are analogs of PCBs, which are used in transformers as a dielectric, uh, same sort of very high lipophilicity. These particular chemicals uh, were used in as fire retardants uh, and in a variety of consumer products. Uh, it's a very stable process. There can be dehalogenation that can be occur in nature via microbial. It can occur uh, in animals uh, via dehalogenation. Uh, again, to enhance the water solubility prior to elimination. Uh, manufacture of these uh, polybrominated biphenyls was actually discontinued in the U.S. in 1976. Before that, though, in 1973, there was an incident where this particular chemical uh, produced under the trade name of Firemaster uh, was mixed up at a, at a uh, chemical plant with another uh, chemical that was uh, uh, used as a feed supplement, uh, magnesium oxide. Uh, there was a problem in terms of the factory manufacturing these chemicals, in terms of the types of bags each one was stored in. Uh, what was happening was that uh, they uh, used some of the wrong bags and tried to essentially write over the top uh, that, in fact, uh, this um, uh, was a, a different material. And it ended up with uh, about uh, 10 to 20 50-pound bags of this uh, polybrominated biphenyl accidentally being sent to uh, the Michigan Farm Bureau Services uh, in place of a, uh, a feed supplement uh, used in livestock. Feed supplements typically are uh, like any sort of vitamin. Uh, it's used in fairly trace amounts, so these 10 to 20 50-pound bags actually went a long way in terms of uh, potential uh, impact of livestock feed and food. It was not recognized until long after, in fact, uh, because of uh, the toxicosis that was occurring in some of the animals and uh, a little bit of uh, uh, toxicology detective work by veterinarians uh, to, to back trace why this particular chemical compound was starting to show up and affect uh, production and the health of uh, dairy cattle. By the time it was discovered in uh, 1974, it had entered the food chain through milk and other dairy products. Uh, there was a tremendous human impact as well as uh, animal impact uh, via the food chain. Uh, it went through contaminated uh, dairy, beef, uh, swine, uh, sheep, chicken, and eggs. And so the whole animal food system uh, was contaminated in that area. Uh, there were about 80 or so farms impacted. Um, I'm sorry, 500 farms uh, as a result, 500 farms in Michigan. The photo on here is a historical image of some of the burial sites associated with managing um, the uh, polybrominated biphenyl incident. Uh, in terms of uh, animal uh, uh, destruction, about 30,000 cattle, 4,500 swine, 1,500 sheep, and 1.5 million chickens were destroyed. Uh, uh, tons of animal feed, uh, tons of processed product in terms of cheese, uh, butter, eggs, uh, and about uh, 34,000 pounds of dried milk products were actually destroyed in response. This was a national uh, incident uh, occurred. Uh, there were nightly reports, uh, some follow-up reports because this actually was fairly invasive in terms of the human food chain. Uh, tremendous numbers of people were exposed. These people were called uh, the uh, Michigan cohort uh, of individuals that were exposed. Um, these people complained of nausea, abdominal pain, uh, some loss of appetite, uh, joint pain, fatigue, and weakness. Uh, with these chemicals, uh, there's some concern about long-term effects, uh, endocrine disruption, uh, carcinogenesis. There haven't been a tremendous amount of follow-up to, to show that uh, there was a direct dose-response relationship in terms of serum or plasma concentrations. Uh, there um, is stronger evidence that some of these uh, may have caused some skin problems, the classic chloracne uh, that's associated with uh, uh, halogenated hydrocarbon exposure. Uh, some workers exposed to PCBs uh, also developed some of the, the acne. And there has been follow-up in terms of monitoring these populations, uh, especially uh, reproductive age females, in terms of uh, their challenges. Uh, and they have seen some second-generation impacts 
although the dose uh, response uh, direct analysis has been uh, somewhat complicated and somewhat difficult to nurse out of the data. Uh, there have been numerous studies. This is one of them from environmental health perspectives uh, on this small table here from that particular publication uh, because we're talking about uh, distribution and storage. This is a, an estimate from the data of the half-life uh, from initial serum parts per billion two or five uh, for two different cases. And this is where these individuals, uh, these are women in exposure scenarios, uh, if their body mass index was less than 23 or greater than or equal to 23. Body mass indicators are uh, a, uh, an indication of the amount of uh, uh, relative body mass and therefore uh, body fat. Uh, essentially, with PBB being a lipophilic compound stored in the body fat, uh, women that had uh, larger uh, BMI, greater than 23, their half-life in terms of years was on the order of range of uh, 5 to 21 years for the same range uh, for uh, women with less body mass index, less than 23. Uh, from four to eight years. And so the idea of storage of this particular compound in tissues is uh, illustrated by this particular table. There were increased rates of neurologic, immunologic, dermatologic, and um, musculoskeletal effects uh, noted in the exposure cohort. Uh, they did not show a particular uh, serum uh, polybrominated biphenyl uh, relationship. There were numerous negative correlation study results. Biological populations are just tough to study uh, in terms of the exposure, what particular products. Uh, this was not a controlled experiment, um, but it does teach us quite a bit in terms of follow-up um, uh, and uh, potential impacts on reasonably large populations. Uh, one finding was that spontaneous abortion rates were elevated among second-generation women uh, after this particular incident. Well, we can take information like this uh, when we have a clinical toxicosis and use it to uh, develop fairly advanced models for risk assessment. One of the things that we do in toxicology is we actually uh, uh, try uh, to use the clinical literature of poisoning to establish some human relationships of uh, toxicosis in terms of dose response in terms of distribution, in terms of storage. Uh, as we compartmentalize not only the environment but our bodies, we can calculate rates of transfer across particular interfaces, uh, critical interfaces, if you will. As we start modeling, we develop what we might refer to as a proxy uh, for uh, situation or specific clinical data, which we really can't get in humans. We don't do dose response experiments in humans. But we can take the clinical data. We can compare clinical data, for example, to rat studies or other uh, uh, organ, organs, organisms in terms of toxicological trials. Um, and the idea, when we do have sufficient background knowledge, we can put all of this together in a physiologically-based pharmacokinetic model. And the idea there is to come up with a computer model such that we can look at the different rates of exposure, uh, dietary exposure um, distribution within the body, and come up with uh, an endpoint and be able to make some decisions based on that endpoint on the relative risks and benefits. For example, uh, clean up an environmental contaminated mater uh, material from a site, uh, look at a water system that's contaminated, look at a food product. Uh, that might be contaminated and do appropriate risk assessment analysis uh, for humans without having to do clinical trials, okay? So this gives us a degree of uh, uh, mo modeling capability, uh, which is probably still wrong, but less wrong than just gross estimations, okay? And the one way you actually truth this, we ground truth uh, these models is by looking at uh, how it relates to these different clinical cases that might occur via poisoning, suicides, uh, industrial exposures. In terms of one of the most developed uh, uh, models that we have, uh, blood lead is uh, probably the most significant. Tens of millions of dollars have gone into developing this particular model. It's called the Integrated Exposure Uptake Biokinetic Model for Lead in Children or also known as the I 
UBK model. I give two um, uh, citations here in terms of the web uh, because this is freeware, my uh, ability to be downloaded. Um, I uh, will require that students in this course actually download IEUBK and also the California lead spread. The California uh, Toxic Substance Control Board actually has developed a very uh, simple spreadsheet format as well uh, for lead risk assessment. Uh, I actually like it better for food exposure because you can put in there different market basket uh, uh, types of uh, products, products from your backyard garden. Um, but uh, these uh, can be downloaded. Uh, they will be subjects for some of the tests or exams problems uh, in the course, okay? Uh, they're very straightforward uh, in the case of IEUBK. It's a Windows-driven product, they're fairly straightforward with a tremendous amount of documentation. We're not going to go through this in lecture um, because there is so much documentation and it's a very straightforward process. Uh, lead spread uh, is another one. Um, again, uh, download it, open it up in Excel, and kind of uh, do some uh, demonstrations yourself to know how this works in terms of looking at a set of criteria and determining whether or not that yields an acceptable or unacceptable blood lead level in uh, children. Now let's go through some of the assumptions in the IEUBK model. It does attempt to predict blood lead levels for children primarily exposed to lead in their environment. There is developmental toxicity associated with lead, and we will do that in further lectures, talk about the specific dose response or blood lead levels and how they are indicators of particular pathogenesis. This model does allow the user to input some of these relevant absorption uh, parameters. Uh, so if you want to look at, for instance, species-specific absorption of different lead species, uh, it allows you to do that. Um, it as well, it allows you different uh, to vary different intakes in terms of food, uh, dust, uh, soil exposure. Um, it is interesting that in terms of uh, lead in children, uh, the lead that's in household dust is a primary vector of exposure of lead. You can use these inputs in, in this model to then rapidly calculate and recalculate uh, the equations associated with lead crossing the various uh, thresholds uh, in terms of the compartments of the body, and it comes up with an estimated potential contribution of uh, blood uh, lead for a hypothetical child or population of children. So it allows you, for instance, to look at a cohort uh, of one-year-olds uh, in terms of how much they eat on a daily and drink on a daily basis, or all kids six months to seven-year-olds, or five to seven-year-olds, and so from a risk assessment analysis, it's a very poten uh, potentially uh, very powerful tool. Um, it's not only uh, uh, an index of exposure, but at these levels, we now know that certain levels in childhood blood samples, ch child blood samples, are indicators of future uh, health problems. Uh, uh, IQ development, uh, social skills, uh, there's a tremendous amount of literature associated with uh, the potential uh, negative outcomes, health outcomes associated with childhood lead exposure. Um, childhood lead concentrations at or above 10 micrograms per deciliter of blood present uh, a risk to children's health. There's actually a proposal right now that is being actively reviewed to reduce this down to 5 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, in blood, um, and uh, the National Academy of Sciences, among other, are reviewing the need to reduce this down yet further. Over the past several decades, this level has been incrementally reduced as uh, scientists uh, have uh, done dose response analyses, modeling analyses, uh, analyses of outcomes of childhood exposure in lead. In terms of it, the model itself, there has an exposure component where we compare lead concentrations in food and environmental media uh, with the amount of uh, lead that enters uh, in a child's body, again, crossing that interface between chemistry and biology. The exposure component uses uh, some media-specific uh, consumption rates, and those consumption rates will vary as a function of the age of the child, and so that's all pre-programmed into it. People have done a tremendous amount of study of types of food and uh, the, how much they make up of a specific individual's diet and the weight uh, to dietary intake ratio uh, associated with children. 
There's an uptake component which measures the lead uptake uh, in the lungs, for example, or the digestive tract. Uh, how much is bioavailable uh, as you breathe it in, as you eat it? Uh, not all of the load of the lead is necessarily going to be absorbed. And so the bioavailability is studied in this particular component of the model. There is a biokinetic component that shows a transfer of lead between the blood and the other body tissues. And so we know a little bit of how uh, these membranes act, how there's uh, active or passive transport of lead and lead components uh, uh, from the body. There is a probability distribution component, and this allows you to actually take a look at a population uh, and represent uh, the potential impact this across a population. So this isn't an individual, this is a statistical display of information. So uh, you can compare it to no st known standards uh, to allow for uh, an increased certainty in terms of uh, risk assessment. So for example, the lead concentration greater than a particular standard, in this case uh, 10 micrograms per deciliter, might be the standard for comparison. How do we do that? Um, we do that by simulating uh, some age weight related parameters for all of the intake components, and then uh, it also simulates continual growth over that uh, exposure time period. So we can look at a child that has grown up for five years in a lead-contaminated environment and get an idea of not only their growth but their assimilation uh, and uh, uh, blood lead levels uh, modeled on that basis. It simulates uptake and distribution within the body as well as elimination. So all of these factors, uh, the kinetics, the membrane, transport, uh, uh, are modeled uh, with the best available knowledge that we have. The model is intended to help uh, estimate uh, some of the uh, child long-term exposure to lead in and out uh, around uh, the residence. Accurate, it allows for uh, provision of an accurate assessment of some average lead, uh, blood lead lead, uh, blood lead concentration values uh, in blood for uh, various different age groups, and it does have a provision to provide for uh, doing a risk assessment associated with hypothetical chi uh, children. It does allow us to predict uh, likely changes in response to uh, uh, concentrations and the impact of uh, modifying those concentrations. For instance, cleaning up the water, cleaning up the soil, cleaning up the local food system. Uh, it allows us to look at the impacts of all of those different activities in removing the source and the most important source in terms of the exposure in that particular uh, site. It is designed to help us uh, uh, facilitate, calculate uh, the uh, risk of elevated uh, blood lead levels um, and how we might be doing better in terms of applying fixed resources, uh, the budget that we have, for instance, in managing a community that is exposed to higher uh, than background lead levels and having the greatest impact in terms of reducing the childhood blood lead levels. Um, to finish up here, I'm not going to open up the software and show you this uh, uh, software. Again, it's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of defaults in this. Uh, it's a Windows-driven program, fairly uh, uh, easy to operate. Uh, in my demonstration here, I took the outdoor air lead concentration as default uh, in the software. Again, you can change that. The concentration in drinking water I just left as the default, which is pretty much background. Uh, for this particular environment, I did a, a highly uh, contaminated soil lead area. It was about 800 parts per million. The dust levels that were generated by the area soil were default. It's calculated from the regional soil levels. The maternal blood lead level, uh, we were having moms that really were at the uh, background level of 10 micrograms per deciliter and other default values in there. And I just uh, wanted to take a look at a distribution probability for uh, one to two year olds, okay, for just a small age group. Uh, my result uh, showed us that 51% in this particular uh, environment, this in particular town that had contaminated soil, 51% uh, of these children would have blood lead levels uh, greater than 10 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, this graphic right here 
gives us the uh, probability distribution. Here's our 10 microgram per deciliter standard, and you can see that significant amounts of these children are going to have blood levels that extend out here in, into the uh, 15, uh, 20, 25, uh, and even 30 micrograms per deciliter range, uh, where we get the potential for uh, fairly acute uh, uh, health uh, impacts. So that gives you a, a sense of uh, the uh, distribution and storage of uh, toxicants as kind of the next uh, step on the pathway uh, of intoxication. Uh, next time what we'll do is follow this uh, in the, the whole domain of uh, biotransformation and elimination. What happens in terms of the physiological and chemical, biochemical consequences of uh, chemicals within the body uh, and how they enter this stream of uh, chemical processes and bioprocesses that, it, that uh, actually enable us to manage uh, uh, intoxication or potential intoxication from endogenous sources, for example, the normal low-level toxicants that occur in natural foods. Until that time, thank you. We'll see you again.